This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. Especially in Canada, it's unrealistic to think you could get your daily requirements of vitamin D from sunlight. We cover up to avoid cancer. We lather on sunscreen to avoid burning, both of which are really smart things. And we spend our time in cars and indoors in nice air-conditioned environment to escape the heat. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss the health benefits of vitamin D. We'll hear how to eat lighter in spring. We'll learn whether metabolic training is right for you. And lastly, we'll consider the ins and outs of baking sourdough bread. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products on the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is also a regular contributor to Tonic Magazine since day one. How are you, my friend? Good to hear from you. I am doing wonderful today. It is always great to hear from you. Today, we're going to talk about something that is ubiquitous. And, you know, people might wonder, why are we talking about it? And that is vitamin D. One of my favorites. So why are we talking about vitamin D? Well, vitamin D has come up and reared its head with a vengeance lately because it's one of the nutrients that has been flagged for having a, a severe impact on immunity. And like all things for immunity in this time, it's come under intense scrutiny. Yep. The good thing is that it's been relatively well-researched long before this in the previous, say, 20 or 30 years. And every time it seems that it's published something about vitamin D, it's something new. It just keeps getting more and more and more. The body of research just is voluminous now. And it's particularly germane to Canada as, as a northern country, right? Oh, definitely. We unfortunately are not blessed with enough sunshine where we can have fun with vitamin D without supplement. Right. So let's sort of take it back a bit and let's discuss what vitamin D actually is. Sure. Vitamin D was discovered much in the same way most vitamins were discovered out of need in the 1920s. With vitamin D, it was discovered as a cure for the ridiculously debilitating bone disease rickets. And like every other substance classified as a vitamin, vitamin D is essential for health. You only need a little bit of it, but you do need it. If you don't have it, it causes severe problems to your body. But the really interesting thing about vitamin D is it's not just one molecule. Most people talk about vitamin D as though it's this one thing. Mm -hmm. It's actually a family of fat-soluble molecules, and that makes it a bit different and a little more interesting to play with. Okay. And it's, it's also a hormone, too, correct? 
Correct. That makes it also very unique in that it's a hormone, and because it's a hormone and how it acts in our body, it is one of only two vitamins that we can make in our own bodies. Ah, okay. So if we make it in our own bodies, why do we need to supplement? Because we can't do enough. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. But to understand vitamin D truly well, we have to delve a little more into itself. Okay. Vitamin D is usually found in one of two biologically inactive forms. There's vitamin D2, which is called ergociferol. Yep. <laughs> There's a mouthful. We're going to call it vitamin D2. <laughs> and vitamin D3, cholesterol, <laughs> which but we'll call vitamin D3. You got it. <laughs> Certain foods naturally contain minute amounts of one of these, those being fish and egg yolks. For those of us who are old enough, you can remember the dreaded, and I do mean dreaded, cod liver oil. Yep. That's one of the reasons it was taken was because it was high in vitamin D. Now, food supplements can only contain vitamin D2 or D3. However, both of those, as I said earlier, are biologically inactive. They both need to be converted in a multi-stage process that involves both your liver and your kidneys to the active form your body can use, 25-hydroxyvitamin D. <laughs> we'll just call that one active vitamin D. Okay. Now, as we talked about earlier about sunlight, sunlight is important when it comes to vitamin D, which is how it became known as the sunshine vitamin. Your body can produce vitamin D when your skin is exposed to the right intensity of sunlight for a sufficient amount of time. The way it actually works is ultraviolet B, known as UVB radiation, from intense sunlight reacts with a specialized form of cholesterol in your skin, and it gets converted to vitamin D. Now, if you look back, say, 200, 250 years ago, our ancestors spent their summers outdoors working in the sun. Therefore, they received enough exposure to meet their needs without diet. But since the Industrial Revolution, almost no one gets enough exposure while working. Today, especially in Canada, it's unrealistic to think you could get your daily requirements of vitamin D from sunlight. We cover up to avoid cancer. We lather on sunscreen to avoid burning, both of which are really smart things. Yeah. <laughs> and we spend our time in cars and indoors in nice air-conditioned environment to escape the heat. This, combined with our two short summers, especially this year, yep. conspire to rob us of our own vitamin D production. And even if you go and actively try to do it during the summer, there's a chance you can meet it, but we're talking normally a six to eight week window if you're lucky. Right. The other 10 months of year, there is absolutely no hope of getting it just from sunlight. It's just not possible. So if we put the sunscreen on, are we preventing the chemical process of our bodies producing vitamin D? Yes, but if you don't put the sunscreen on, you're there's gonna... no guarantee you will get enough, and then you're going to have the bigger worry about getting skin cancer skin yeah. cancer, and doing damage to your skin through burning. Right. It's just, all in all, it's not worth the risk because vitamin D is so easy to supplement with. Isn't it added to some of our foods? It is added to foods. A lot of dairy foods will have small amounts, but the problem is it's still difficult to get enough from food even. Okay. You don't need much but you do need enough. And if you look at the daily requirement proposed by experts, less than 25% of us Canadians and Americans, and think about Americans in the southern U.S., you have the opportunity that we don't have, less than 25% of us still reach that bar. Hmm. So what should we do? How do we supplement? Well, the nice thing is supplements are everywhere. You can get them in tablet, capsule, strips, liquids, drops, you name it. You can even get them in gummies now. You can get them in everything. 
but you have to be intelligent about it. Okay. There's been a fair amount of controversy out there, and if anyone wants, they can look it up on the internet, regarding which form of vitamin D to take. Some people say D3, others swear by D2. Now, you have to understand the difference. Vitamin D3 is generally from animals, whereby vitamin D2 mainly comes from plant sources and can be vegan. There have been a ton of studies out there to try and answer the question on which one's more effective at converting, that is, vitamin D2 and D3, on converting into the biologically active form of vitamin D. Some trials put D2 ahead, while others put D3. If you look at the research overall, there may be a slight difference, but it's negligible. It is truly negligible which one you pick as far as efficacy. The bigger predictors for vitamin D status, which is how much vitamin D actually is converted and is in us, were the dose size, the dose frequency, your liver health, and the sex of the user. Those mattered much more than whether you pick D2 or D3. So if you want to make sure your status is good, make sure you have decent liver health, make sure you take vitamin D on a regular basis, and make sure you take enough on a regular basis. So how much should we be taking? Oh, well, that's a tricky question to answer. And the reason it's tricky is the recommendations proposed by Health Canada and the USDA in the United States were all around bone health. Okay. Not around everything else it can do. And bone health is considered to be on the lower spectrum of what doses range there are. So, for example, in Canada, Health Canada says you should supplement, if you're an adult, teenager, or an adolescent, a thousand IU a day. Okay. If you're an infant or a baby, they're saying 400 IU a day. And for the health of your bones, I completely agree. No issues there. The problem is if you're trying to do more than just your bone health, which there's so much more vitamin D can do, then you've got to up the dose. And when I say more things it can do, the short explanation of that is it can help with literally tens and tens and tens of things in your body. The long answer is it can prevent a lot of things that you want prevented. And I'll go through a list of them. Okay. You've got osteoporosis. Vitamin D helps to increase the absorption of calcium from your intestines. That's why it's found in, I'd say, 90 to 95% of calcium supplements. Right. And that's probably why it's in milk too, right? Because people Correct. can connote it with, with the calcium you get from milk. You yep. got that. On top of that, it actually helps your muscles. And we're not just talking your bicep, your tricep here. We're also talking your heart. Vitamin D plays an important role in muscle function. They found that adequate levels improve balance and strength of muscles. And very important back to osteoporosis, if your muscles are stronger and you have better balance, it also decreases the likelihood of falls and fractures. So they help each other there. Right. So if you're older, then taking vitamin D is a good idea. Definitely. You also have mood and depression. Research has shown that vitamin D plays a key role in regulating mood and warding off depression. Now, here's a key one. People with depression who receive vitamin D supplements noticed an improvement in their symptoms. Research shows a relationship between vitamin D deficiency and symptoms of depression. However, and this is key, they don't know whether vitamin D has a causal effect with depression or people who are depressed just naturally burn through vitamin D more. Hmm. So we don't know if it's the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken. We just know there's a relationship between the two. Right. We then move on to stroke. Low vitamin D is associated with 
damage to major blood vessels supplying the brain, as well as the spinal cord. Low vitamin D predicts more severe strokes and poor health after strokes. So vitamin D doesn't stop a stroke. It doesn't do that. The research does not say that. But it does say that stroke patients, so people who have already had a stroke, that if they have low vitamin D levels, they're more likely than those with normal vitamin D to suffer more strokes, more severe strokes, and have poorer health after the stroke. And it just keeps on going, the research. We also have research on dementia and cognitive decline in Alzheimer's. Vitamin D receptors are widespread in brain tissue. They found that vitamin D has a neuroprotective effect on the brain, including clearance of amyloid plaques. And what those are, those are the plaque pieces inside brain tissue that are the hallmark of Alzheimer's. Also, the risk of cognitive impairment was found to be up to four times greater if you're vitamin D deficient versus those that aren't vitamin D deficient. And four times is a huge number. Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> That's not something small to laugh at. Yeah. One of the biggest areas of research with vitamin D probably in the past 20, 25 years has been in regards to cancer. What they found is that in studying cancer cells themselves and tumors, they found that vitamin D has many activities that slow or prevent development of cancer. There have been many, and I do mean many studies, that have shown that higher intake or blood levels of vitamin D are associated with reduced risk specifically of colorectal cancer. Research also suggests that women with low levels of vitamin D are at a higher risk of breast cancer. Vitamin D plays a role in controlling breast cell growth, and they think it might be able to stop breast cancer cells from growing. Additionally, in men, because, hey, we're there too, yep. in men with prostate cancer, those with low vitamin D levels were more likely to have rapid growing tumors when compared to those with normal vitamin D levels. And the science just keeps on coming. Wow. Weight gain, because <laughs> how many of us, especially in quarantine or isolation, have uh, not put on a pound or two? No comment. <laughs> We're I'm in that group also. This is radio, Joel, not television, so there will be no, no visual proofs one way or another. Fair enough. Studies have found that women in particular with low levels of vitamin D are more prone to weight gain when compared with women with adequate levels of vitamin D. The other interesting thing they found is that women who started with low levels of vitamin D also ended up weighing more when the studies began than women with normal vitamin D levels. So what that means essentially is not only were you more likely to have greater weight gain if you're low vitamin D, you were more likely to start off heavier with low vitamin D. Hmm. And part of the reason behind that is that they know that vitamin D, when you increase your levels of vitamin D, it lowers the level of cortisol. And uh. listeners may have heard of that. Cortisol is a stress hormone that in low levels is wonderful and helps your body handle stress. The problem is for those of us who live long, stressful days, the more cortisol that builds up in your system leads to increased abdominal fat. And abdominal fat's bad because that is the one that ends up leading to health issues. Correct. Now, the reason lately that vitamin D has been in the news has been with regards to infection. Multiple studies, both in adults and children, have shown that vitamin D deficiency is associated with decreased immunity, and here's the kicker, 
increased risk as well as greater severity of infections, particularly infections of the respiratory tract. Oh, wow. Yeah, so very timely. As part of that, literally in the past two weeks, Trinity College, which is a prestigious college in Ireland, released a paper discussing the link between vitamin D and COVID-19 specifically. The results come from a long-term study on healthy aging with over 8,000 participants that they've been tracking for years. They found that vitamin D plays a critical role in preventing respiratory infections, including the type of infection that COVID-19 is. Because COVID-19 is so new, they couldn't actually test for COVID-19 itself, but they tested for the the type of infection it is. Hmm. And they found that it ended up, if you had decent amounts of vitamin D, it reduced the amount of antibiotics used, and it gave your immune system a boost specifically to help respond to respiratory infections. Okay, so I know it also happens to help potentially with diabetes and and chronic disease, but we only have time for one more question. And that is, what is the correct dosage for an adult considering all the things the vitamin D can do? Well, if you're looking to do and get all of its health benefits, I suggest going higher than what Health Canada says and going more with what a lot of the researchers and health organizations think. And what they're saying is, if you're trying to get more than just the bone health benefit, you want to take in the 4,000 to 5,000 IU range a day. I personally take 5,000 IU of vegan vitamin D drops every day for good health. And the nice thing is, it's been shown that that level is safe. You only have to worry about going way too far if you take really high doses for a long period of time. Because it's fat-soluble, your body will store it. And that doesn't make sense. And when I say really high doses, I'm talking 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 IU a day. You don't want to go there. 5,000 is safe. Fantastic. Thank you so much for an extremely helpful and informative interview. Thank you. I must say I truly enjoyed this one because I learned a lot myself. Fantastic. Next month, you're going to come back and you're going to discuss the all-natural first aid kit, yeah? Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. Me as well. That was Joel Thuna. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss eating lighter for spring on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Are you stressed out? Feel exhausted? Having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, and sleep better. Discover de-stress, chill pills, and sleep aid from New Roots Herbal. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. For more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Shauna Lindzen, is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. 
Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. You can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm pretty good, Jamie. How are you? I'm holding up. We're all in this, and now we're going to move forward, and it's springtime, and a lot of people love spring foods. I'm kind of on the fence. I'm on Really? The f- yeah. Why? Well, we'll talk about you know spring fruits and vegetables. They're interesting to me. I prefer the harvest vegetables, but you know it's important. I think that we eat the local spring vegetables, and and I think eating for the time of year is actually a very good way to get unique nutrition into the body. Does that make sense? It does, and we are springing into spring now. Yeah. And if you look at the vegetables coming out, I think the quintessential spring vegetable is asparagus. I know. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Like they look like little tree, like they're popping up almost like a tulip. Like when I think about an asparagus, and also well, I think they look like something else, but that's okay. We'll, okay, next subject, Jamie, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> for another show. For another okay, show. So beets, which is kind of interesting because beets are like a heartier vegetable. Yeah. And beets, you can eat them raw. You can eat them cooked. They're the greens. beautiful. The greens. You can the use the greens. The beet greens. Yeah, and that's also reduced food waste. You cut up the beet greens. There's only one thing as a dietitian that I do have to air caution to, they're extremely high in oxalates. So if you have kidney stones, stay away from the beet greens. Ah, but the beets themselves are fine? Yes, it's the greens that carry most of the oxalates. Are fiddleheads on your list? Okay, fiddleheads. Do you have any stories about fiddleheads? Because I actually have... No, I have um, no stories about vegetables. I was at a restaurant. This is maybe three or four years ago. I know with fiddleheads that you have to boil them before you cook them. So you can't just roast them. You can't just stir fry them. You actually have to boil them to get rid of... The fuzz. Well, the toxic compound in them. And I actually at a restaurant ate fiddleheads and two or three hours later was violently vomiting. Oh, so I was poisoned, and I called, the, or my husband did, because I was not feeling so great, called the restaurant and said, your chef did not cook these properly. My wife is in the washroom vomiting. So you have to boil the fiddleheads before you roast them, before you don't just stir-fry them up. So please do so if you buy fiddleheads okay. or get them in your produce basket. Okay, another reason not to eat fiddleheads, as far as I'm concerned. What else is on your list? <laughs> They're uh, a little funny, huh? A little yeah, funky not, if you want to use that Not one. my thing. Uh, <laughs> are ramps on your list? Yes. Okay, and also garlic scapes. Yep. And the really cool thing about garlic scapes or ramps, you can make a pesto out of that. because They have a really kind of pleasant, garlicky taste. Yeah. And you can also stir-fry them. How do you use them? Sort of sautéed is the way I've had them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think about doing a pesto. And, That's interesting. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good idea. And other really hearty vegetables that come up in the spring are carrots and cabbage and mm-hmm. mushrooms and onions, sweet potatoes, white potatoes. But what's interesting, when I was starting to research like spring vegetables, what I want to do with them, don't forget about the greenhouse vegetables. Mm-hmm. So the greenhouse vegetables are kind of equivalent. They're going to be around. They're high in the nutrients. So if I think about Ontario greenhouse vegetables, I think about strawberries, tomatoes, and we don't get the really good tomatoes until usually, I guess it's July and August, right? Mm -hmm. Mainly August, probably. So just don't forget about the Ontario greenhouse vegetables, and they're locally grown, and they're a good option. Okay. Are we getting into fruit? Are we going to talk rhubarb or... 
ooh, rhubarb, actually don't laugh, but I have a st- same kind of story. They also, you want to avoid the rhubarb leaves. Of course. I actually did have poisoning. I don't know, once about, probably you know, about 12 years ago. For a dietitian, you get poisoned a lot. I know, I was poisoned twice, which is good because then I can actually help people and tell people. True. So with rhubarb, what happened was I bought it at my local grocery store. And the rhubarb, if you buy it just after spring, some of the leaf, because of the frost, some of the... folded into the stalk. Yes, pulled it into the stalk. So what you want to do is you want to cut a lot of the top of the stalk off of the rhubarb. And a great thing to make with rhubarb is a strawberry rhubarb crisp or a galette or a pie. Yep. Delicious. I also used to make rhubarb compote, which is when you stew the rhubarb down with some ginger and some sugar. Yeah, I just don't like the word compote, but yeah. Is, I it, is it kind of. I don't yeah. know. I have words that I don't like. Biscuit is another one, but. Why? Uh, Tell I me. I just don't like the sound of it. A negative um, connotation to uh, it. I, I don't know what it is, but compote is another one. It doesn't sound appetizing to me. You're right. It's, it's not a very sexy word, compote. Right? Is yeah. It? I kind of agree. It sounds like you're mispronouncing it. It should be compote or something, but you know. It, yeah. I don't know. So you've mentioned what you're doing with the ramps and, and the rhubarb. What are you doing with asparagus? I have my own asparagus root, but what do you do? Okay. So with asparagus, lots of things. I like to roast them mm-hmm. in the oven and then put a little bit of Parmesan or Reggiano on it, a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, and you're good to go. I do like recipes where they'll use raw and cooked asparagus. So you can shave up the asparagus and make a raw salad with it. Mm-hmm. It goes really well with lemon juice, mm-hmm. the asparagus. Yep. And there are some recipes that I've seen in like South African cookbooks where they put crumbled hard-boiled egg onto the asparagus. And I think that's a cool way to do it because that could be a full meal. It's interesting. I grill the asparagus. I put olive oil, lemon juice, and spring onions, and then sometimes a little mint. Oh, that uh, sounds good. Mm-hmm. And you, you grill them up, and they get a nice flavor. They get a nice flavor, yeah. Do you eat them raw ever? Only if they're properly, as you say, shaved down because Mm -hmm. it can be very fibrous. Like when I go shopping for them, I go for the very thin ones. If they're too thick and stocky, I find the cooking times between the tips and the base, even though I cut off the bottom third, it's still too fibrous. They actually say that the thinner ones taste better. I believe that's true. Yeah. Look for the thinner ones instead of the big, thick, woodsy stock. Correct. Yeah. I'm with you. Other things you can use for utilize asparagus for quiches or tarts. Yep. Like you can make a goat cheese asparagus tart with some caramelized onion. Asparagus are pretty versatile. And I, w- I just thought, do you have the gene where you can smell the asparagus yes. when you pee? So yes. it's actually a gene that it's an olfactory gene. So everyone does have that conversion where your urine smells, but not everyone has the capacity to smell it. I didn't know that. I thought we were all in the same boat. No, it's an olfactory gene. Huh. We ordered in from a restaurant, one of my favorites, Ufizio. They now have asparagus on the menu that they are serving with a whipped lemon ricotta, which is quite delicious. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, asparagus and cheese is a very nice combination. Yeah. Okay, so if we're doing all this cooking... Should we be doing it ahead of time? Like, what do you recommend with the spring cooking? Yeah. So normally when we think of like batch cooking and making food for the freezer, we think of the winter foods, right? Like we think of the hearty soups and the casseroles and the stews, that type of thing. Yeah. 
What I would suggest is with the spring vegetables, like let's say if we talk about carrots, you can batch freeze muffins. So you can grate the carrots down, put them into a muffin and batch freeze that. Hmm. You can also do pestos. So as we talked about with the garlic scapes and the fresh herbs, you can make a huge batch of pesto and freeze in an ice cube tray for instance. Mm -hmm. And then those just become flavor bombs. You can throw those into soups. You can throw those into stews. You can throw them into pasta sauces. And I always tell people, if you, people often complain that they have too many herbs, right? Like I used a bit of this and a bit of that, and now it's just sitting in my fridge waiting to rot. That's the time to make the pesto. True. Actually, do you know what? You just reminded me. Yesterday, I did fruit leather with strawberries. I bought strawberries were on sale, so I bought quite a few. And I'm going to tell you an easy recipe. You take two cups of berries, Mm -hmm. two teaspoons of honey. You puree that in your blender, and then you put it on a Silpat mat in the oven. You dehydrate it at 175 degrees convection or 200 degrees conventional for three to four hours on a cookie sheet. You put the Silpat mat and boom, four hours later, you've got the most gorgeous fruit leather. Have you done that before? No. How long does it last once you've made it? Two minutes. No, no, no. How long? No, No, I didn't mean how quickly will your family eat it, but how how long does it store for once you've made it? Oh, forever because it's dehydrated, but it only makes one sheet. So literally my family ate it right away and I have to make it again today. That seems very expensive. Yeah. It's kind of expensive in terms of like keeping your oven on for that long, Yeah, but it's a really healthy snack actually that everyone loves, kids, adults, everyone. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, it's great. So batch cook, get your good containers, get it all, put it into the freezer and you'll have it ready year long. Fantastic. That was Shauna Lindzen. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Wayne Elliott here to share my great experience over the past 20 years with Strauss Heart Drops. If you've had bypass surgery, stents, have angina, diabetes, cold hands and feet, grayish blue lips or skin, I urge you to try Strauss Heart Drops and feel better again soon. Strauss Heart Drops saved my life and thousands of others without risk or harm. Go to StraussNaturals.ca to order online or find a store near you. I promise you won't be sorry. I hope you give this to yourself. Thank you. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Noah Schwartz is the founder and visionary behind N Fitness. As a former competitive athlete, he knows the value of a well-balanced, enjoyable lifestyle and has made it his mission to inspire others to become their best selves. He's a certified personal trainer, metabolic training coach, and nutrition coach, giving him a uniquely holistic approach to health and fitness. Building a sustainable, enjoyable, healthy lifestyle is his main goal for all his clients. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing well. So you and I, back before COVID, would spend our Tuesday nights together in in what was my craziest workout which was a metabolic training session, which is something that was new to me. 
and it was phenomenal, man. Um, Thank you. So I'm here to have you on the show today so you can explain what metabolic training is, and we can sort of discuss whether or not it's the right fit for our listeners, all right? I'm ready to go. Here we go. So let's start at the beginning. What is metabolic training? So metabolic training is just a style of working out, of training, where rest times are short. You're using compound movements like squats, like lunges, like a chest press, like a push-up. Any men involve multi-muscle, multi-joint movements. You won't be doing any like standard bicep curls in isolation when we're trying to get in and out in the shortest amount of time and in the most efficient way possible. So doing very short interval workouts, like there's a big misconception with the difference between metabolic training, HIIT training, and low-intensity cardio training. And HIIT training is where you're really, really going hard for a short period of time and your rests are way shorter. The way I do it, the metabolic training, it's between 10 and 30 minutes to get an amazing workout but you're really focusing on getting the most out of that 10 to 30 minutes in the shortest amount of time possible, going for like 30 seconds on, 10 seconds off, or 40 on, 15 off, where that heart rate gets really high and you burn as many calories as you can in the shortest amount of time. Yes. Okay. And what was the low-impact training? uh, How would that be differentiated? So low-impact training, it is very beneficial for people. It helps with heart health and everything, but it's not a thing that I tell people to rely on. So low-intensity cardio is like walking, or going for a jog where you're burning, let's say you're going for a half hour, you burn 500 calories, that 500 calories that you burn is done with. You do metabolic training, you are burning, say, 500 calories in the 25, 30 minutes, or even 15 minutes, but you end up burning, I call it the afterburn effect, you're burning calories even after you are done the workout, right? Metabolic training involves the metabolism. So metabolism is where when you're at rest, it's calories burned at rest. So you want to burn the most amount of calories possible within metabolic training. Right. And so like the low impact stuff is, is still critically important, particularly if you're like, if you're really out of shape, you know, starting to do a long walk, getting your 10,000 steps in is super important. Let's not diminish 100%. that. Right. Like, I know, I know that's a huge part of what you espouse, right? Like, it, yeah, I'm all about lifestyle. I'm all about just the biggest thing I always tell people, I say consistency over progression is huge. If you're consistent for 24 out of 30 days, of the month and you really, really lock in, you will see results. The people that try to be perfect are the ones that maybe they lose weight short term, but they get really frustrated long term and they have too high expectations. And they usually, not everyone, nothing, everyone go back to where they were before, which is a shame, but consistency and lifestyle is what I preach to my clients and preach to every one of my following on my, on my Instagram or any of my media outlets. Okay. So what are the benefits of metabolic training? Like why would I do that as opposed to something else? So metabolic training is very high impact. It's very taxing on the body. So that's why I preach tons of recovery, taking days off in between in your off days. There you go for the long walks or the the slow impact jog or just like just to active recovery. So the benefits is are, are that you're getting the most work done in only 10 to 30 minutes and you're burning the most calories possible. So what are you doing here? You know, my business involves 30 minute or less sessions where you're doing so much within 30 minutes, you're in and out. And in that 30 minutes, you're getting the most done possible. And those are the benefits. You don't need 50 minutes in the gym. You don't need 60 minutes in the gym. I always say intensity over duration any day. If you're giving intensity three, four times a week, you will be totally fine if your nutrition is pretty much locked in. Yeah. And, you know, the truth of the matter is the intensity of the workouts, at least the ones I've done with you, you couldn't do it for much more than 20 to 30 minutes without being good. You could do it. If you have any, sorry to uh, jump in, but I yeah. want to say this, if you have any energy, and I say this even in my Instagram lives and all my Zoom sections I'm doing right now, if you have any energy left, or at least if you're not tired by the end of 20 to 30 minutes, however long the workout is, 
you know next time you got to pick up the gear because you should have nothing left and you should not be able to do anything the next day other than a long walk or some sort of active recovery where you let the joints heal and, and recover. Yeah, no, 100%. When I take your classes, the following, it's a long rest on the couch after and a, and a day off the next day for sure. So, I, I hope so. <laughs> uh, so what does it look like? Like to, to people who have never seen it before, what would a metabolic program look like and what sort of equipment would you be utilizing? Well, one, you don't even need that much equipment. You can True. do body weight, a lot of stuff I'm doing, but you want to get the most out of the 10 to 30 minutes. So like dumbbells do help. Body weight is anything that involves compound movement. So like a squat to press, anything that involves two movements and more muscles being used per exercise. So you burn the most calories per exercise in the shortest amount of time. So like going from a squat to a chin up or a push up to a chin up, anything that involves, I call it the protagonist muscle, say you're using the chest and then you're using something else that's going to rest that push up or rest that first body part to give you energy to do the second part. So from like a squat to a push up, while you're using your legs, your upper body is getting a break. While your upper body is going, your lower body is getting a break. So it's really, it's a tough thing to structure, but it's been a really fun experience for me to, to really learn about metabolic training, getting the most out of people in the shortest amount of time. And the biggest thing is that people are mentally in it compared to like walking into you're like, oh my God, I got, I need to work out for 50, 60 minutes. You don't. If you, I, I found that over the last five years since I started this 30 minute business, the people have gotten the most out of these sessions because they're mentally in it. And our generation has changed. The world has changed. People want to get in and out. No one has that much time. So it's been a really fun experience and people have gotten crazy results in it. And guess what? It half the time. Yeah. So can anybody do metabolic training or are there some limitations that you might want to think about before you start a program like this? So you always want to start off slow. So obviously here's an example that I always give at the start the work to rest ratio. So say you're a beginner and you really like for the first couple of weeks, if someone's a beginner with me, I'm starting them with very simple compound movements, like the squat, like the lunge, like the push up, like a chin up, even any that involves like a standard movement. And then I progress them every week. So like, for example, week number one, they might go 30 on 30 off, right? Where they're getting a one-to-one work to rest ratio. And then week number, let's say week one and two, they do then week three and four, there are all of a sudden that's 30 on 20 off. So that tells me that, I always look for as a trainer, their recovery. Is their recovery getting better? Are they able to now do a jump squat or add load to the squat? So that's how I see progress. So from a body weight movement like a squat, how I see progression. Do you drop the rest uh, period or do you now add load, a dumbbell, like a 20-pound dumbbell? So a load is a load. Whether if you're a beginner, a, a squat is a normal body weight squat. will get someone progress if they're just starting out. Right. And yeah. then over the course, you don't want to repeat that so many times. You got to change the intervals. You got to change the, the load to the individual. Obviously, it is very taxing, like I spoke about before. So days of recovery are very important. And the people that say, and I'll always say that the people that say they do metabolic training five to seven times a week are probably not going hard enough. Yeah. That's one big thing I always say. So, you know me, I'm north of 50, and there's a few of us in, in your class. Is it okay for people who are 50 and older to do this? I mean, you know, like I've, I've been exercising for a long time, but like take the average person. 100%. Everyone could do metabolic training, and it just depends on the person, whether they can't do a jump squat. Maybe they do a squat instead. But the biggest thing for people over 50 especially is knowing their injuries, knowing what they can and cannot do. And maybe they just do a little more low-impact stuff. But low-impact stuff doesn't have to mean going for a jog or walk. I'm talking about maybe just doing more push-ups and more body weight movements over load where their joints are getting through, getting up, put in a lot of stress. Also, maybe their recovery is longer than, say, someone like me. So say someone that's 29 years old, my recovery might be only 24 hours. So I'm ready to go hard in 24 hours, whereas someone a little older 
might need 48 hours to 72 hours. And that's how I really teach people. Doesn't matter your age, metabolic training for everyone, but there's modifications that could be put within and their schedule could be changed depending on the age and depending on the restrictions or injuries or conditions they might have. Okay. Do you feel like there needs to be a requisite fitness level before you take on metabolic training? Should you be doing other sort of exercising first? If you're a beginner, you should always just start off with simple things. And that is a walk. That is just a little bit of strength training. So like I'm really big into isometric work, meaning isometric holding positions to get the mind-muscle connection going, like holding a squat for 30 seconds and getting those muscles used to for when we do a squat or a jump squat and all that. You can never just jump into a metabolic training session or a really intense training session because it's very taxing. But I'll never tell someone they can't do a class of mine. I'll always say just take your time. Don't worry about anyone else that's that's doing it. Worry about yourself. You need a break. Take a longer break. These people might be on consecutive rest, meaning like they're going 30 on 10 off. You might need 30 on 60 off. And then you work yourself into every single week and you progress every week. Just being better than you were before is such a big thing. Small baby steps. 1% 1% better every day if you're really patient as up to <laughs> crazy results in a short amount of time. I would agree. Do you think there's anybody who shouldn't be doing metabolic training? Are there any drawbacks or any contraindications for somebody? Yes. Uh, I think people with maybe with heart conditions, that if their heart rate gets up to a certain point, which metabolic does tend to do very quickly, they should obviously check with their doctor first. But like we spoke about before, the, the benefits are endless in metabolic training. It's hormones increasing. It's testosterone for really, really building muscle. And we all know, or most people know, is that the more muscle you have, the more calories you will burn at rest. So all that long-distance cardio people are doing. Again, that's not saying that's bad. But if your goals are to shed fat and feel great and increase your hormones, metabolic training is for almost every single person in the world. It is so beneficial. Uh, you save so much time. And it's fun. It's a it's like a community thing as well. That's it a is. big thing. Like my, like my met camps that you spoke about before that you do. It's a community thing, and people compete, and and it's a lot of fun, and you oh, want to be yeah. better oh, every yes. single session. Oh yes, they do. They do compete. I would say it's the small cohort of everybody over fifty is the most competitive in your class. At least hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And you can see in my class that there's so many different age ranges. Like there's twenty four year olds. There's 48-year-olds, or even like early 60s, and everyone is different. And I feel like the first session to the session we just had before COVID, people progressed like crazy in that class. Obviously, they shed a lot of weight, but they also like the mental side of it. They gave up a lot at the beginning, and then all of a sudden they're like, okay, I got the mental gains now. I got the mental strength to get through these sessions. And then it became addicting, like you saw. Like metabolic training becomes addicting, and that's why I think people come back to not only me, but come back to metabolic training because you save so much time And that's what everyone in the world is looking for now, convenience and efficiency. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. That was Noah Schwartz. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the ins and outs of making your own bread on the tonic. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Center is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. This is The Tonic 
on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for over five years. And since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? I'm good. What are we going to talk about today? I know you've got a juicy topical topic, topic, topic to talk about. Yes, I've got a big fluffy topic, baking bread. But not just any bread, right? Sourdough bread in particular. Okay, so why are we talking about sourdough bread today? Well, because everybody's talking about it. We're talking about it because everybody's talking about it. It's a trend. It's amazing how things can blow up. But people are baking at home. People are baking sourdough bread specifically. And there's a number of reasons for that, I think. Yeah. For one thing, you have to be home in order to bake bread. doesn't mean you have to be home all the time, but there's steps that need to be taken. Right. Everybody's around, even if they're busy, even if they're working at home, they're still at home. So they have time to do this. If people are looking for a project, people are interested in crafty things, you know, back to basics, learning how to whatever, make fermented foods. Homesteading. Homesteading, exactly. Home farming, chickens, all that stuff. Yes. They're home to eat the bread, right? There's people, especially if you've got a family at home, yeah. a lot of cooking involved. And so you got, you're going to make the bread, you're going to have people to eat the bread. It's also, it's fun. It's sort of, it's just a tactile thing to make bread. And all this stuff is true all the time, but most of the time people don't have time to deal with it. And now it's like, hmm, looking for a project? This is a great project. In particular, for sourdough, there's a shortage of yeast at the beginning. You know, in March, April of this year, when everybody was buying stuff, there was no yeast to be found. And I think that also fed into this desire for sourdough. Yeah, I mean, in some stores, you couldn't even find flour, Yeah, right? yeah still, it's still hard to find flour. Still not the same. And that's led to some criticism as well, right? You wouldn't think that bread is a controversial issue, but it kind of is. It can as I say anything can be controversial. It's interesting what people can find to talk about or to be angry about. Generally, my view is this is a harmless pastime. In fact, a good skill to have, and it's good to eat because I love bread. You know, I'm a carb lover. Yep. But some people have criticized it as being part of the Instagram culture. You know, you're only baking bread to show it off. In the same way you could say, go on your vacation to show off your pictures, and it's a status symbol. And it's like buying a Peloton. Oh, you're at home and you're baking bread because you can. You're living um, your best life. Exactly. And that may be true for some people. I don't think that's true for all people. I've heard it's a bit of noblesse oblige, you know, playing around with labor, again, because you can, because you have the money and the time to do so, like Marie Antoinette and her farm, in her pretend farm on her in the Palace of Versailles property. Which was very nice. We went to Versailles. It was was very odd to imagine this huge pretend farm that she played in and her let them eat cake, which was really about let them eat bread. So that's sort of another idea. Yeah, I I don't think the people that are baking at home, though, are the Marie Antoinette ilk. I think they're, they're looking for something to do. They're expressing their love. They're trying to fill their time in a constructive way. I think people who are critical of it, and you can write to me directly on this, are offside. So, because I like sourdough bread and I like that you're making sourdough bread and I think their complaints, they're just using it as an excuse for their political agenda. And yes, my email is jamie at tonictoronto.com. All right, let's get into the ins and outs of making the sourdough. 
Okay, so I realized when I started talking about sourdough a couple of months ago that people didn't actually know what sourdough was. I mean, yeah. they know that they, they may like to eat it, but they didn't understand. So sourdough starter is homemade yeast. Before there was commercial yeast available, people made bread this way. It's yep. fermented flour and water. That's all it is. You mix it together. You let it sit on the counter. You keep adding more flour and water and discarding, you know, the balance. Otherwise, you'd have a huge amount if you kept adding and not throwing away. The bacteria and the flour feeds and creates gases and air bubbles, which is what leavens the bread. That's what it is. So technically, sourdough bread doesn't have any yeast in it at all. So all you need is flour and water. Some sourdough breads do have some yeast in them, but you don't have to. Right. And it's delicious. It has a distinctive taste, a sourness or a tang to it. And the inside's really soft, with ideally with holes, and there's a nice thick crust on it. Yeah, I think it's the crust that I like the best in the sourdough bread. Yeah, and when if you're buying bread, Blackburg Bakery has got great sourdough bread, but today we're talking about do-it-yourself. Right. An interesting thing also is that it's fermented because the sourdough starter is fermented and that makes it more digestible and more healthy than other bread. Right. Mm-hmm. So those are all good reasons to do it. So if, if one were inclined to do it, where would they start? Okay, so basically you can start right now. You need flour and water and thyme. You know, you're mixing, you're creating a starter where you mix and wait, mix and wait, mix and wait. And then once you've got your starter, you mix that with more flour and water. You mix and wait, stretch and wait, you know, bake. So that's all you need. But, of course, it's a little bit more technical than that if you want to make really good bread. In terms of the recipes, I have three books to talk about because I know if you were to Google sourdough bread, there'd just be so much that it would be overwhelming. So you're going to curate? I'm going to curate for you. Okay, good. One, Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast is the name of the book by Ken Forkish. This is one of those sort of fundamental bread baking books. It's really good. It's very technical. When I first got it, I thought, No, it was very complicated and I couldn't really sort of focus on it. But now that I've had a bit more time and energy to devote to it, it actually, that's a great book to have. If you're willing to sort of think about the technical temperature of the water and the temperature of this and, you know, that's a good one. He also has a lot of videos online, which I would encourage you to look at. So if you don't want to buy the book, look at his artisan videos on YouTube because they're very helpful. Some people are really good at reading directions, even when there's pictures. I found the videos really helpful. So that's one. Mm-hmm. We made a bunch of different breads, including pizza, yep. not sourdough, which is a great that, book. That pizza dough is the bomb. Yeah, yep. and there's not a ton of recipes in this book. It's yeah. just, you know, it's basics of bread. Yeah, it's another, procedural. Another one, Josie Baker Bread. The guy's name is Josie Baker. That's his real name. Yeah. And this is a fun book. It's less technical and complicated than Ken Forkish books. It's accessible, and the bread is still good. Josie Baker does a ton of videos on Instagram. So he's this young hipster guy from San Francisco. You can easily look at his videos and his recipes. Again, the video is really helpful to see what it looks like when they talk about stretch and fold. That didn't mean anything to me until I saw it. So that would be a good resource. And San Francisco is obviously connected to sourdough breads because the climate and the moisture they have in the air makes for a phenomenal sourdough there. Exactly. The, the three books that I'm talking about, you've got Ken Forkish is from Oregon. Josie Baker is from San Francisco. And the last one I want to talk about is Zachary Golper, who's got a bakery in Brooklyn, where they're also very into the old time, sort of back to the roots, good bread. Yep. So this is bien cuit, which means well cooked. 
chef's name is Zachary Golper, and he owns a bakery by that name in Brooklyn. And his book is a little bit different. Still lots of steps and pictures, a lot of different breads, more variety of breads and not just sourdough. But again, once I figured out the technique, it works really well. Really good book. I even found a recipe online with a video on a site called panacooking.com of him making his 30-hour sourdough, which I made today. And it was really helpful. So the recipes plus the videos or even just videos or just internet recipes, you can do it. Okay. Now, do you need any special tools or any special flours if you're going to make a sourdough bread? Again, you want to start, you just need flour, water, your hands, and time. But it's good to have bread flour or good flour. I've been buying fresh milled flour from Broad Flour, which is a very cool store down right by Zoomer that mills their own flour and sells it. You can either pick it up or they can deliver it to you. And Yeah, you uh, got me picking it up, but that's okay. (laughs) One could pick it up. (laughs) One who is handy down at Liberty Village could go pick it up. It ain't cheap, but it is very good. Yeah, and you don't need to use that flour, but every book that I read said fresh milled flour is the best for bread. So I thought I would try it. Plus, bread was scarce in the grocery store. So flour, good flour, good to have different flours. Like I like using a little rye, a little whole wheat. makes it interesting and healthier. Mm-hmm. A scale is really helpful. You can use you know, measuring cups, but a scale just makes it much easier because a lot of the percentages and recipes are in weight as well as measures, and it's more accurate that way. Right. A thermometer is good to have also. Like you can do without a scale, you can do without a thermometer, but the temperature of the water is helpful. You've been using my digital barbecue thermometer for that. And it's actually, you know, it's not too expensive. And it's a handy tool to have both those tools. The scale and the thermometer are great for any kind of cooking. Exactly. I use them for other things. We happen to have them, but I've found them to be very useful tools. A proofing basket, which makes the bread rise, sort of a special rattan basket. It's not very expensive. It helps the bread to rise. You don't need it. You can just use a regular bowl, but that's something that's interesting to have. And it makes a nice pattern, too, on the bread. It does, yeah. A Dutch oven to bake the bread. Again, people would have a Dutch oven and use it for different things, but it makes a really crispy, crackly crust. If you don't have that, you just bake the bread on a baking sheet and you add some moisture to the oven. So all those were the basic tools. There's additional tools that people have, but I wouldn't, you know, you don't need that. And you don't need any of the things, as I said, really, like you just start playing with flour, water, and time. Fantastic. We have time for one last question, and that is the discard, because it's sort of, uh, as you said, you keep feeding the mother, and then there's stuff that you can't use. There's discard after you fed. So what can you do with that? Right. And this goes to the you know potential criticism that it's wasteful or expensive because you're using up the flour and then throwing it out. But there's a lot of delicious things you can do with the discard. Yeah. Every week we've been making sourdough pancakes or waffles, New York Times recipe, which is great. It's not something to make do with the discard. No, it's delicious. delicious. Yeah. yeah. We've also made sourdough brownies, which we made for your birthday, yes. which we even requested. So again, really good brownies if you have the sourdough. And I made sourdough crackers, which were also flaky and buttery. So because of all this interest in sourdough bread baking, there's all kinds of recipes for people saying what to do with the discard. Don't throw it out. Don't waste it. Lots of additional baking you can do while we're at home. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. You're going to come back next month to discuss more recipes. I will. Fantastic. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Shauna Lindzen, Noah Schwartz, and Naomi Bussin. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. 
You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. During COVID-19, we're suspending distribution of the magazine, but Tonic is generally available free on racks in over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website, tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me directly at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss probiotics, functional exercise for golf and tennis season, and meal prep 101. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.